we're here to talk about a very, very near and dear subject to my heart. Y'all know I'm raising sons. It's very important for me for them to have, um, one, the understanding that emotional intelligence is very, very big for them to understand it verbally, how to communicate it, as well as for them to have a community. So because I am not and never will be a man, I brought you guys here to answer some questions for the community just to kind of help um, talk about the issue. So let's get into it. Uh, can either of you share your personal experiences or observations regarding the barriers that prevent black men from seeking help for mental issues? You want to go first, Brother Minister? Yeah, let me uh, let me do that. Barriers that prevent prevent African men from from seeking help. Um, let's let's deal with the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room. Uh, which is racism, white imperialism, and how that manifests itself in various agencies, uh, various various mindsets, uh, particularly the mindset of you don't need to talk things through, okay? You just need to be on your hustle and grind uh, we don't have time for what I call Oprah moments. Okay. And I think, I, I guess you could say that there's external and internal barriers. Um, the internal barriers basically of not feeling, not wanting to admit that you may be insufficient through no fault of your own, that you may be inadequate through no fault of your own, and always being measured by a standard from which you have been denied to achieve. So if nature built you to be this thing we call a man, but yet there are external forces that have prevented you what I would call arrested development, okay? But yet it demonizes you, vilifies you, and criminalizes you for not reaching it, okay? That's where a lot of your quote-unquote mental illness begins. And I always like to put things within context and not look at uh, situations in a vacuum. Okay, so if we want to talk about mental health, mental illness for African men, what does that look like for African men having to navigate in an anti-African society, which is designed to prevent them from reaching their full potential as men? Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm glad that you brought up the external factors um, that, mm. that put us in that situation. This is a catch-22, right? Mm. Um, and yes, there are, you know, no access to medical, you know, to mental health, um, no access to, you know, insurance, all that stuff that we don't have to, because it's expensive to go see a therapist. Let me say this right now. Whether mm. you're doing single, couples therapy, family therapy, it's it's expensive. I've seen the bills, and this is like woo. And not all not all insurance covers it. So just, that's number one, right? Number one that um, getting access to that. But number two, you're right. Um, we 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 have a situation where you're right. White supremacy says that we are these machines. We are these we are these robots, and we are just bodies that are supposed to. Whether we was on the plantation or in the factory, you know, or on the streets, we're just these machines, and our bodies are disposable. And that includes our mental and emotional health. They are disposable. So, yes, right. I agree 100 percent. There's that external factors that's preventing us from doing that. Um, that being said, uh, we have to. Our people have always been resilient. African people have always been resilient, whether we're talking about our history, our science, um, um, martial arts, whatever. We've always had to learn how to preserve all that information, all that knowledge, all that wisdom, mm. you know, pass it down to one another. Right. Because. I learned African history from our elders. They passed it on to me. I didn't learn it in the schools. I'm degreed, but I didn't learn it in the schools. 
I learned it from I learned it on the street corners from the brothers and the sisters. They pass it down to me. So just like that, when it comes to mental health, we have to figure out ways where we can um, heal us, begin healing ourselves through community, because that's the only way we're going to make it out of here is through community. So um, so that's you know, we have the external then we have the internal where we have this idea of masculinity being that we have to be these emotionless robots because that's what we were told to do. Right. We were told that we had to be emotionless robots. So we perpetuate that every day in our community, in our schools, in our, in our churches, um, you know, on the street corners. We perpetuate this, this idea of to be a man, you have to be this emotionless robot right. um, that's headed towards self-destruction. Pretty much just like the Terminator, right? When you look at mm-hmm. about um, you, uh, Social Negative movie, Arnold Social Negative, the Terminators, they were these robot, robots that were mass produced to kill one another, right? And that's pretty much the cycle that we continue to perpetuate and the cycle that we have to figure out how to stop. Does that answer your question? Time to figure out how to stop it. And I heard, yeah, very much so. I heard both of you gentlemen talk talk about um, societal expectations and a lot of those expectations start first at home. Um, Not only those, but stereotypes. Can you tell us how those expectations, stereotypes of black masculinity has impacted your own mental health and potentially the mental health of other black men that you know? Um, I know like, and, and, and um, the minister could probably speak to this because when we were younger, um, pimps were like a big deal. Like mm. it was in our music, we talked about it. Uh, men bragged about it. As men, we bragged about how many women we got. I remember being a young man. I remember being in the military and at, at breakfast, we would get together and we would all talk about our sexual exploits from the night before. So our masculinity, we we, we believe because we were taught that, right? Because on, remember on the plantation, you were valued as to how many children you could make, right? That's what the value of a, of a, of a, a man or African was to the slave master, how many children you can make, right? Uh, with as many women as you can. And that's something that we kind of like continued, it continued on after slavery. So a lot of us, our masculinity is tied to our sexual prowess, right? How good we were in bed. Not even, and I, I wouldn't even say how good we were in bed because it wasn't seeking pleasure for the woman. It was just how many women we can bed. And that was something, when I was young, I was really caught up in that idea of my masculinity is tied to my sexual prowess, how many women I could bed. Um, and, and, and also, I see, I know a lot of, a lot of my peers at my age, we have this discussion about vasectomies because I'm like we got to stop having all these kids at this age but a lot of them feel like their masculinity is also tied into having children as well so that was something that affected a lot of us and how we treated our women uh, because we thought that that's what a man is supposed to do right Um, and also the idea the the capitalist idea which is a Eurocentric idea the capitalist idea that which was fed into us that we're also uh, masculine by how much material wealth we, we accumulate right so what kind of car I drive, right? What kind of clothes I wear, what kind of sneakers that I have on, what kind of jewelry I have, chunk jewelry, right? We call it chunk jewelry. Those are all things that we were told we had to be to be men. And that's what we projected, that outside shell of what a ma- what masculine masculine is. So that was for me growing up, that was my experience. And for me, well, here, here's what I found is that a lot of our quote unquote rites of passage into manhood came through one of four vehicles. It came through Greek lettered organizations, gangs, military, sports. In my case, it was sports. Okay. Uh, The stereotype, particularly when you have African males who have earned scholarships athletic scholarships to universities, particularly predominantly white universities. Um, The minute you step on campus, you have already been branded as a jock, you know, to the point where people will ask you not what is your major, but Mm. what sport do you play? Mm. And a lot of times, you know, many of us who, who, who played football, the brothers will say, well, I'm here on a golf scholarship or I'm on a swimming scholarship. Okay. And only when we may be in a classroom or some other academic setting 
where you get to see another side of us besides being gladiators on game day. Mm. Okay. So we had to overcome that stigma and that stereotype of just being jocks that were given quote unquote a free ride. Mm. Wow. Wow. I didn't know you played ball, uh, Minister. Yeah. I didn't know that. And that, and it goes and that goes back to what I was saying earlier. We're just bodies, we're disposable bodies, right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. That's powerful, brother. And, you know, the academics, it's it's crazy that across the board, uh, you know, often as a woman, I feel like that aspect of me is very undervalued. It's interesting to hear you say the same for our brothers, especially in collegiate arenas, like where, where the focus should be academia versus the sports. That's that's. Man. So in your opinion, gentlemen, what are some outdated roles and expectations that black men are still expected to hear to, to adhere to? And how do these roles contribute to the mental health challenges? I, I would say this. And and I think Dan, being a contemporary, will concur with this. I think we have to get off or we have to shed the the John Henry role. OK, because traditionally, particularly if you go back into, say, the late 19th century on down to the present, you know, many of us have taken on that John Henry role where physically we can outdo anything and everything. And mm -hmm. for those who may be unfamiliar with the story of John Henry, his physical prowess of being able to use his hammer to, you know, lay down uh, railroad spikes. And so he was challenged to uh, work against this train, okay? Or it was like a drill, yeah. all right? Long story short, he barely won, but he killed himself in the process. Yeah. yeah. Okay, going back to that whole disposable body thing where we feel part of our manhood is in our physical prowess, you know, tied into sports. I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. Disney just got in trouble for redoing that, that story in a cartoon mm. on Disney plus, and they caught a lot of flack for that. Oh, yeah. Wow. So a lot of people will be familiar with that story. Okay. So, so I think, it, I think for, for, for African men, if we can shed that John Henry mentality of thinking that, our physical prowess, we can overcome anything and everything, including technology. Okay, which now is beginning to render our physical labor obsolete. Mm -hmm. You know, in many ways, there's an economic term we use creative destruction. Because now technology, which renders our physical bodies obsolete, because if a machine can give us the same productivity as a human at a fraction of the cost and a lot less headaches that humans bring with them to the table, okay? Now, what do we do? All right, so I say get, get rid of that John Henry uh, role, that John Henry mentality. And I, and I agree. And this is, this is, um, and, and I talk to a lot of brothers about this all the time. I mentor men that are, you know, maybe 10 years younger than me. And we have this discussion about how there's this pressure for the accumulation of that material wealth, right? Mm -hmm. There's this, you know, we have to, I have to get more debt. I have to do more of this. I have to make more money. I have to do more of this. And that's a, a big pressure that we also need to get rid of this idea that we have to accumulate all this wealth and have all these things um, to make our families happy or make them comfortable, right? Mm. Um, you know, food, clothing, and shelter, everybody needs that, right? So, right. and I'm not saying that a man shouldn't provide. You know, we should. Mm. If we're going to raise a family, we should provide. But right. there's, this, there's, this, there's this, this pressure to be, you know, bigger house, you know, bigger right. cars, you know, all of that. And that all ties into the John Henry idea because I just work another job. And I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of, well, you know what? I want my family to be super comfortable, so I'll work another job, you know? Because mm. um, that doesn't, you know, again, we don't get enough rest. Right, because we need we're human right. beings. We don't get enough rest. Uh, we have let we spend we spend less time with our families, right? That affects mm -hmm. our mental and emotional health, right. and we have we 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 don't do much self care because of that, right? 
right. um, because we work ourselves to death. And John Henry worked himself to death, like literally worked himself to death in that story. And that is a, a metaphor for us as well. Perfect metaphor. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that all ties into the physical part as well. Right. Oh, and one other thing that came up while you were talking, um, I think religion as well. And, and I'll explain. In the Old Testament, where it says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Okay, so that accumulation of material wealth. Now, is that man thinking not just of the here and now, but now being pressured to think two to three, maybe five generations beyond him, which puts even more pressure on him to saying, okay, if I can't feed my immediate family now you know i was listening to uh dr miles monroe and he's he was saying how a good man should be able to uh the inheritance for his children's children he should be able to leave that for two to three generations down the road right now mm. not when he makes his transition so that's even more pressure to not only think about the here and now, but two to five generations down the road. In, in the presence of superinflation and stagnation, stagnating wages, you mm. know, job discrimination, right. you know, um, high incarceration rates for African males, like we can go on and on. Yeah, all of the external stuff on top of that, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, y'all said some some amazing <laughs> references. John Henry is is one of the ones that I've often referenced for my sons uh, to show them this the power and the strength and the imagination and creativity. And plus, he's got a cute little girl that he likes in the, in the little cartoon. So it's phenomenal. You know, you get to show them. Like I said, I can't represent the thing that I'm not. So I always have to create this kind of community. Um, and you're right, I, I do see a lot of black men that struggle with finances, not acquiring them or maintaining them, just that pressure, that anxiety. I actually know a gentleman that um, ended up getting uh, hypertension because he was so stressed mentally, just piling this on himself uh the bills taking care of the wife taking care of the family not being emotional not feeling pain to where that when he went into the doctor's office uh they immediately put him on blood medication drugs because they thought he was going to stroke out looking at his heart rate but he had just been living like this for months and would have never known so my question is what steps can be taken to challenge and break down some of these outdated roles and expectations in order to promote healthier expressions of black masculinity. I think I think um brother minister said it first I think we have to let go of some of these you know you know the John Henry we got to let we got to let go of you know wanting to accumulate all this wealth all these material things excuse me not wealth because you you can't you should accumulate wealth but not material thing is that we think wealth is material things. So we got to get out of this idea of of accumulating all these material things um and the, the pressure to, to what they what we used to say back in the day um to keep up with the joneses right you gotta like get, let go of those things but i think the one thing i learned very at a very young age was i used to get these really bad migraines um and the doctors couldn't understand why i was getting these migraines and i remember one year i, I for a new year's resolution i decided to get more sleep and literally overnight stopped getting those migraines so I learned very early that the first thing I need to do is make sure I get enough rest. Like mm -hmm. not 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 on Sundays when I'm not working, when you sleep in. I mean, every day I'm getting enough rest. Um, right. You know, that, I think that's the first thing we need to do is getting enough rest. And I think the example you gave for God is with, with the brother. He just wasn't getting enough rest. Like that's probably the number one thing we should start doing, focusing on rest. There's a sister that does the NAT ministry. She talks about how, you know, she talks about how it goes back to slavery, how we weren't allowed. We was working from sunup to sundown. Then we right. had to worry about our families, got very little sleep. Um, so that's something that comes from that that um, that, that enslavement, right? Not getting enough rest. Matter of fact, people, what was it? Nas said, sleep is the cousin of death. Like, what are you talking mm. about? Like, you, need to, you need to get rest. So I think the, the first thing I'm going to say is get rest, however that right. looks like for you. Mm. 
And, and to add on to that, you know, it's interesting because Dick Gregory always said that the number one cause of death in America is sleep deprivation. Yes. Okay. And to add on to that, <clears throat> not only getting proper rest, but also what are we ingesting? Mm. Yep. Okay. Do we have, you know, I remember the, the founder of Move, John Africa, he said, if you want to find the best food, go shop where the white people shop. And I thought that was funny when I first heard it. But what he was saying is, is that do we have access to quality food and water? Okay. How much water, uh, pure water, are we ingesting on a daily basis that, you know, flushes out our system? All right. How much exercise? And when I mean exercise, not just walking. As we get older, one of the things I'm learning is, is that we need to be engaged more in strength training for a number of reasons. One reason in particular, uh, when you talk about your testosterone level, okay, testosterone affects three main things. It affects your lean muscle mass, it affects your libido, and it affects your mood. OK, so they always talk about as you get older, it gradually declines. So what are we doing to make sure that we keep our testosterone levels at at a at a, at a high rate? OK, and strength training is one of those ways that we can do that. So uh, proper rest, uh, what we ingest in terms of food and water and uh rigorous strength training so i think you know we 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 start there and when we also talk about health uh do we take the time to just unplug and just be you know i i, I think a lot of times we're addicted to noise we're addicted to being on the go but we never take the time to just stop and be just to recharge because a lot of times, how many times are we running on, running on E, but we're still mm -hmm. trying to go. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then all of a sudden somewhere we crash because we never took the time to recharge our batteries. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because like there's a mental fatigue, there's a, there's a mm -hmm. physical fatigue and there's a mental fatigue. And I think right. from experience, mental fatigue to me is much tougher than physical fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, you're right. We don't unplug. We don't. Even if we're even if we're sitting, we're, we might be watching TV, right? Right. Before they go to bed, they're on their phones. We don't really unplug, right? Until mm -hmm. we close our eyes. And I think we do need to take time out of each day to unplug and just be centered on ourselves. Whether you meditate, whether you sit in nature, you know, whether you do yoga. You, right. you, you definitely have to find a, a time to unplug because all that's and that's up. And you know what? You said it earlier. Readjust when you when you watch something, when you read something, when you talk to certain people, you're that's it. You're ingesting. You're you're ingesting information. It works just like a physical when you eat food. It's right. the same way. And you could be ingesting negativity, you know, bad stuff. I, uh, last year, I did a, a, a negative fast where I couldn't watch or read. Um, uh, anything negative. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't speak negative. I right. couldn't, you know, cuss. That was mm. probably the toughest 30 days of my life right there. Wow. Where I could, I couldn't read. I love reading comic books. I couldn't read comic okay. books. So like, but I realized that those 30 days, I realized that I ingest a lot of negative information. I really do. It, it was, it came as a shock to me because I thought I was somebody who didn't do that, but mm. I really ingest a lot of negative stuff. And it taught me a valuable lesson that yes, I need to unplug um and watch what i ingest you know mentally yeah in fact i, I actually did a 30-day speaking fast at a shambhala retreat oh, wow in uh i want to say i was in massachusetts so basically we were all in at this retreat and nobody could speak we had to find uh non-verbal ways of communication wow and you know so we engaged in that we engaged in, uh, you know, a walking meditation, uh, mm. stationary meditation, but no speaking. Wow. And that was a very powerful thing for me because it, I think it also allowed people to heal by mm. 
not speaking because there was nothing you could hear except the bell when it was time for meditation. Hmm. Wow. That would have been tough for me. <laughs> you, you, you paid for that? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> that would have been tough. Like, yeah. mm. um, another thing that I, I recommend that brothers do is find community. Because um, I think a lot of times we feel like we're alone. Right. Um, and for me, for my experience, finding community, that's how I met Seku, Brother Seku. Um, mm. That's how I met a lot of brothers that are on this show through, through you know, through just community. Like, you know, I, I can't exp- I can't put into words how brothers have really been in my corner. As when, I, when I started my family, my brothers have been instrumental in me being a better partner, a better father, a better mentor, a better educator. Just to this day, completely instrumental. Like I couldn't have done it without him. I really, I would, I would have to write a book to thank everybody that's been in my life, that's been in my corner. Um, shout out to the Varners, first of all, um, and, and um, the late great brother George. Like they, they were in my corner. They supported me. They lifted me when I needed to talk to someone. They were there for me at a moment's notice. And I think that was crucial in my growth and development, and really in my mental, my mental health. It was really right. crucial. Because the moments when I felt like I was going to break, they were there for me um, to mm-hmm. uplift me. So finding community is crucial. And we have to learn how to get out of just talking about sports and women. It has to be about right. other deeper issues. We have to really talk about that. So finding community is – and you have to find it. You really do. But they're out there. They really are out there. So that's right. probably the biggest rec- – if I walk away with anything today, is that to find community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, you may find different – uh, quote unquote tribes and clans for different aspects of your life. Indeed. So like where, where I'm at here, uh, there's a group called community fathers cool. and it was cool. created by an elder Walter Simpkins, who is now an emeritus, but he created because he saw the need to help, uh, fathers who were wrestling with re-entry after incarceration, oh. uh, navigating the child support system. Uh, finding work, all of these things, and really just being creating a, a a place where men can feel emotionally safe, and mm-hmm. knowing that they have a sounding board to say, "Here's what I'm faced with. What can I do about this particular situation?" You know, and so it's not just you know just having one group. You know, there's multiple, you know, multiple things that you can that you can tap into. And especially for the younger men, I think this is the thing that I think is really missing. Um, I always feel that every man should have. An elder or an OG that's two generations older than him. Okay, because I think what's happened is, is that somewhere along the way, we've been disconnected from elders, okay? And it's to the point where, and I I think I said this in another show, where now you've eliminated the OGs and replaced them with IG, Mm. okay? Mm. So now you've got uh, a generation who thinks that artificial intelligence is the new OG, but Google, Instagram, etc., can't give you the wisdom that an OG can give you because there's certain things that an OG has lived through that artificial intelligence will never experience. I agree. I agree. And 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 I want to go. I want to go back because we talked about this in the previous um, podcast episode. We talked about the effects of crack cocaine on our community mm-hmm. and how it disintegrated our community. Right? right. Where I remember a time when. You know, the elders would be like, hey, what you doing over here? I'm going to tell your mom, right? right? I'm going to call your mom, you know, or, or I'll discipline you, you know. So, or your mother heard about what you did. And then when crack cocaine came through, it really destroyed that where a lot of our elders became afraid of the young people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the young people saw the elders as outdated. So we right. have to like, it, it's a two-way street. We have to, elders have to yeah. be present and then mm-hmm. the young people have to seek us out. Well, I'm not an elder yet, but we have to seek the elders out. Right. So, yeah, so like, um, that's what needs to work. And I really, you know, again, if you seek, you'll find them. And like they say, the student will show up. Right. So mm-hmm. I think because of that disintegration, a lot of us still have that fear 
of, mm. of walking up to one another and talking to one another, just having a conversation. Right. And as far as the elders go, you know, one of the things that I heard uh, Dr. Miles Monroe say is don't be a generational thief. And what I mean by that is whatever knowledge, wisdom and understanding you possess, don't just keep it to yourself. That is to be bequeathed to those future generations so that way you can shorten their learning curve and so they can avoid the pitfalls yep. that we experience yeah i agree 100 yeah i, I agree 100 yeah we, that's our job we got to share that information we have to mm. pass we definitely got to pass it on because there's a lot of stuff that we lost you know right. especially during covid we lost a lot mm. of elders during covid so mm. I, I agree 100 we got to definitely pass that on you know and and like i said whether whether it's oral or whether we, you know, write books, um, you know, I've always talked about immortality being putting your experience in a book. So someone, you know, 75 to 100 years from now can benefit from the wisdom that you passed on. Um, I used to tell my nephew this. I said, look, I can teach you about the past, but you have to teach me about the future. Indeed. Okay, so I can advise you and give you information that is relevant to you. I think sometimes we make the mistake of passing information on that may have worked for us, but is obsolete and irrelevant to what their situation is. So we always have to be mindful that what we give the youth is relevant to their situation today. No, I agree because I know a lot of people come to me for dating advice, and I'm like, dude, I was dating in the '90s. Like, like I don't think I, I could give you any information. I was dating in the. I would love to help you out, but I was dating in the '90s. It was a totally different time, you know. Um, but I do want to say you said something about writing. Um, I, I, I'm mad that I learned this late, but um, journaling has helped right. me out tremendously. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the best part of journaling is that I can go back. A couple years and i can read what i was talking about that particular right, day right. and i'm like oh wow i was really tripping or oh i didn't see it this way and you know hindsight is 2020 mm. so like but it really helped me with my growth and development it really helped me formulate my thoughts really helped me go push through the emotional spectrum i was able to really i'm, I'm upset today you know but then later on i might just be disappointed in myself and later on i might be embarrassed like but i'm able to like walk through those emotions and how i feel about certain things um, so journaling has been tremendous in my healing journey journey. I have several journals now and I recommend to all the dads out there, all you young dads and young uncles too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you should write a journal to your child or niece, niece and nephew, because what's going to happen is 20 years, 25 years from now, they're going to have questions and you're just going to not know, you're just going to forget these things, but you have it written down and they'll be able to access that information um my my youngest is doing an autobiography and i was like i just i'll just pull out the journal i wrote for you when you was a baby right and i gave it to him and it's been tremendous help for him so writing you know doing a journal on yourself i have mm -hmm. a writing journal i have a professional journal where i talk about what i do at work right um, and then i have one i'm doing another one for my, my my youngest son now he's about to graduate so i'm doing one for him to give to him when he graduates so um but yeah but just that's just a journaling has just been tremendous help um, it's helped me really with my mental health and all of that stuff. So, mm. yeah, cause it, it reminds me of uh, what what Chuck D said in Welcome to the Terror Dome. You know, when he says, you know, when I get mad, I put it down on a pad, give you something that you never yeah. had. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yep. So, you know, so journaling is really a a constructive outlet for whatever uh rage or whatever emotion you have now that you articulate it through writing or even through sketching yes 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 okay which which has become another form uh i think it's still called art therapy mm -hmm. okay where now you can express yourselves whether it's through the written word or whether it's through some art medium okay so i think it's it helps us and behooves us 
to find constructive outlets to express whatever it is that we're feeling or whatever it is inside us that we feel the need to get out. And then that go ties into what we talked about before in another podcast, mm. um, avoiding self-medication because right. the, the okay. journaling has helped me avoid self-medication mm. um, because a lot of us self-medicate. A lot of us ingest drugs and alcohol, mm. you know, to forget the things that we're going through. And I think journaling kind of like circumvents that. So, but we have to avoid self-medication as well. Like, um, because that's for, for men our age, especially it's been a big problem. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's like that old, <laughs> that old mob deep song, drink away the pain. So yes. it's like, okay, yeah. do, do we want you to write about drinking away the pain or do, <laughs> or do we want to see you with, with, with some Hennessy really drinking it, trying to drink it away? Okay. <laughs> so that's why I said, you know, finding things that are constructive and productive uh, to get whatever, uh, you know, whatever that rage or whatever that intense emotion is out of you, because it could lead you into uh, discovering another aspect of who you are Facts. as a man. Facts. You know. Facts. Or rediscovering something you did when you were young that you stopped. Ooh, right. That's so dope, gentlemen. I love I love what y'all said because as as a grown woman, that's where I'm at now. As my children are spending more time with their father and learning more about that side of their family, that is one thing that I look to my children, right? Because they give me back pieces of myself. So I look at my sons and see how uh, they're they're phenomenal little artists. And sure, they get some of that from their dad, but that means they also get some of that from me. So that means I have to tap into that too continue to express myself and uh, grow deeper into who I really and truly am. So again, I love, I always love making the contingencies between how men and women are so similar, even though the output is different. You know, uh, you as a man may take journaling and learn something totally different. I've done the same thing that you're talking about with my sons when they were in utero. I created um, email addresses for the two of them. Now they're both talking to me from those email accounts, it's, it's kind of trippy. Um, but have you, either of you encountered like some specific stigmas or prejudices within the healthcare system when seeking uh, mental health support or just in general healthcare support? And, and then what can be done to address and overcome these barriers? I, I would, I would, I will say that, um, in looking for when you do when you go when you when you cut when you, if you have the money to get a, a, a therapist, you have to shop around. Um, and I think what happens oftentimes is that um, even though it's all documented, and there's studies that prove it, and um, everybody from politicians to lay leaders to mental health therapists have talked about it, um, you have the mental the, the therapist has taken into account that you are black. And that there is an oppressive system that is on your neck. And if they don't take that into account, I believe they're doing you a disservice. So I think that when you shop around, you should ask them that, you know, you know, right. what do you what do you think about white supremacy? Do you think it exists? Do you think it affects do it affects me and my community? And if they say no, then you might want to go to someone else um, because that and, it's, and the, the, the wild thing is that it's documented. There's studies that, you know, that say that, yes, white supremacy, slavery. Um, Jim Crow, red line, redlining, all these things have affected us, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally as well. Right. Um, and, if, and if that therapist is to take that into consideration, you need to take your business elsewhere. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and I, I guess I would put it this way. It's like you can choose a Dr. Alvin Passant or you can choose uh, a Dr. Bobby Wright or a Dr. Naeem Akbar or a Dr. Mm -hmm. Patricia Newton. Okay because they're, they're, these are all black psychologists, but one is considered mainstream while the others are considered quote unquote radical, okay? The ones who are considered radical take into consideration what you're dealing with, understand that you are trying to navigate through a racist society. I think it was Dr. Bobby Wright who basically said that psychology as we know it its primary objective is to get you adaptive to an insane society. 
It was Bobby White, yeah. Psychopathic. Okay. Psychopathic, yeah, he did that, yeah. Okay, so yeah. it's like, in essence, there's really nothing wrong with us, but something has happened to us. And all we're trying to do is how do we make sure that we can maintain uh, our sanity, uh, maintain not only our mental uh, and emotional integrity, but our spiritual and our cultural integrity inside uh, a toxic incubator that we call racism, white imperialism. So it's kind of like this external force versus this internal power that we're trying to exude. If that, you know, if that makes sense. It does. No, it does. It does. Okay. Because, and it goes back to what I was saying. If your therapist is not, is not focused, is not talking, not adding the white supremacist component to it, hmm. then, you know, that outside, you might as well not go to the therapist. Right. Yeah. You know, because I think the outside yeah. component and that internal, right? So yeah, right. How, our response is is internal. Because I think the 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 most ideal is to find an African centered therapist. That's the ideal. Uh, I had one for seven years. Uh, he was originally from South Africa, went to New Zealand, and then finally made it here to the states. And that experience really, it was mutually beneficial because coming from different parts of the African world community, it was like we were able to exchange notes mm. about our experiences as African men in different parts of the world. Mm. And it was kind of like he would uh, ask my insight about things going on in America. Uh, I would ask him about, you know, what was South Africa before apartheid post-apartheid and and some things that you find are very very similar you know once you once you remove all the propaganda and once you really sit down with one another okay so so finding one ideally who's african-centered uh would be mutually beneficial and and i think the way you can do that is um word of mouth so like, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, the wild part is I have a colleague who's an African-centered psychologist, mm -hmm. a very good friend of mine. We, 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 we met through dancing. Okay. Um, and um, but he's my he's my friend, so I can't go to him. But I recommend right. him to people that I know, to brothers mm -hmm. that I know. I'm like, hey, you need to go to this brother right here. Right. Shout out to Dr. J.D. Um, but, yeah, he's someone that he recognizes that. And he's just like, yeah, we're going to let's deal. Let's deal. Mm -hmm. um so um but yeah they're they're out there so use word of mouth to find them because you're not going to see it um if you have access to the insurance insurance the way it's set up is not going to tell you but you should shop around definitely shop around but word of mouth is going to save us just again i'm gonna go right back to community um we not only should we be seeing a therapist we should be having circles um with brothers um right. if anybody needs i do have an outline for a six-week circle for men, it's, I call it fresh to death, D-E-P-T-H. And it's an outline of what you can discuss and how you do it. And I can mm -hmm. send that to anybody who wants that. Because um, my goal is to set up as many of these circles around the country as possible. So if I run mm -hmm. into somebody in New York and they ask us, so my, my brother over here does it in New York, my brother does it in Florida. So I'm mm -hmm. trying to make it as many as I can. So Right. Ooh, I shaded that. Gentlemen, we got a really, really dope question in the comments. This brother said, y'all be knowing stuff. <laughs> now, what books y'all be reading to learn this? And as you can see, brother Dan got, got a whole library behind him. So share with them some knowledge, gentlemen. Um, You did say the book that I can never remember the name. Bobby White's book, The Psychopathic. The Psychopathic uh, Racial Personality. That's the That's the one that that was a game changer for me. Okay. Um, and it's a short book, couple of essays. And Bobby White, I think he's the premier, the late great Bobby White is the premier scholar when it mm. comes to black psychology. Um, right. And then the late great, anything the late great Amos Wilson wrote. Um, I know everybody references his Black Power book, but um, the one that when I became a young parent, his book on child psychology mm -hmm. um, was very crucial in, in me as a young parent. Right. Um, so, but yeah, Amos Wilson is another one. Okay. Since you brought up Amos Wilson, there's two that I just pulled up here. Make sure I get them in front of the camera. 
if you can see oh, this, the falsification of African consciousness, that's yeah. one. Okay. And then the other one, I just got this last week. I haven't tapped into it yet. Issues of manhood in black and white. I got to get that one. Yeah, I don't have that one. Yeah. Okay. Well, and not he only. Has, he has what yeah. called the psychology of the black child. Every parent, black parent should get that one. Psychology of the black child. That's the one. Right. And the other one I think he wrote is Awakening the Genius. Oh, yes. Uh, the black child. Okay. Yeah, some, yeah, some mm. yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's my um, favorite book. Naturally Awaken the Genius in Black Children. Right. Uh, and then um for those who may be familiar with Dr. Naeem Akbar, uh Chains and Images of Psychological Slavery. Yep. And then Breaking the Chains and Images of Psychological Slavery. Um and Visions for Black Men and Community of Self. Those those four. And Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and Dr. Naeem Akbar travels the country, he still lectures. So if he shows up in your town, highly recommend that you go. He's very personable. He'll eat dinner with you. Really great, great brother who put in a lot of work and um, mm -hmm. amazing. Just yeah, but yep, Dr. Naeem Akbar. Okay. Definitely, and then um, for those who are familiar with um, two ancestors, uh, one, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Yes. Um, and her work, the ISIS papers. <laughs> Um, and then her protege, Dr. Patricia Newton, uh, who became an ancestor a couple of years ago, I think she was working on a book. She was based out of, I want to say, Baltimore. Um, if you were to study those two women and dealing with now they dealt in psychiatry, mm -hmm. which meant that they also had the uh, they were also licensed to offer medication if necessary. OK, so they dealt with psychology and psychiatry from an African centered perspective. So I would definitely recommend those two ancestors. Super dope. You know, you know, I'm always about giving the, the gift of knowledge. And I love that you gentlemen are so well read. Um, how can we engage the older generations? Dan, you say you're not an elder, but you're on your way. And that's not a bad thing. You know what I'm saying? You, you're closer to being an elder than you think. Um, you, you an uncle, I guess that's the, the, how the, the lineage goes, right? You go mom, dad, auntie, uncle, elder. <laughs> so as an uncle, um, how can we scaffold? I feel like this is a very important time for our age group to, um, reach kind of between both worlds, right? There's ABC, we're at B, right? We can reach back to, to the youth, those that are younger than us, but still kind of connect with the older generation because they understand us a little bit better. So how can we begin to engage those older generations in conversations about mental health to bridge those gaps between that mentality and the new school perspective to create a more inclusive understanding environment? Um, I'm going to just say that, um, and I just moved it. Uh, we just bought a new house. I moved it to a new community. Um, and in this community, uh, my, a lot of my neighbors are older. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, my mother taught me because my mother, my mother, my mother's 70, 72. She's going to be 72 this year. And she goes for these long five to seven mile walks. She's been doing it all her life. So, and she, she taught me that you walk in your community and you get to know people, just get to know people. And it's funny that it's funny because I missed that last podcast. I was on the phone with my mom. She was going on her walk because it was it was too it was too warm. She went later, and all the dogs in the neighborhood were like following. They were like walking with her because she they they know her right. So she taught me very young that you should talk to your elders. So like I so as soon as I pulled up here, I'm I'm working. You know I'm all dirty. I saw I saw my neighbors. Hey, how y'all doing? Da -da 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 -da. Introduce myself. Find out they were older, and just consistently go check on them. I go check on, um, I have elders that I've known and I just go check on them. I just go visit them. I bring my young people with me, whether they're my capoeira students or my mentees, I bring them with me so they can meet them and they can talk. And it's funny because they end up becoming better friends than, than I do. They begin, oh, I went to visit them the other day. So I think just, it's very simple. Just go where they at. And if you're an elder or OG, you make sure that you're present. So I know as an OG, I, I'm known, I'm, when I was in Virginia here, I was known for always showing up. I'm always showing up. I always want to share. Um, and because I, I want to lead by example. So if you always show up and you're present, you can make those connections. Um, so, yeah. So go visit your elders. Um, go check on them. Go see how they're doing. And and it's, it's I love it because they drop nuggets of wisdom, just little nuggets here and there, just like they do in the movies. You know, in the movies, you go to the movies and they 
the old kung fu martial artists are dropping nuggets it's the same way they do the same thing they drop nuggets and you have to digest them and it'll come to you later on so that that simple thing of just meeting up with them talking to them um asking questions helping them out helping them with their groceries goes a long way and, and i think a lot of times how you conduct yourself you can attract elders to you okay um i've known that that's been the case with me where an elder will just show up out of nowhere where i'm just going about you know doing my thing and whatever it is that i'm doing it sparks something in that elder to want to come talk to me okay so sometimes how you carry yourself you right. don't even have to go looking for elders they'll come to you because there's something that you're doing that they're impressed with and they want to share something with you. And I, and I just want to say that, um, shout out to Seiku. Cause I remember we, when I was in, um, when I was in, um, oh God, I can't believe I forgot. When I was in the Imani foundation, they taught me that I have to bow to my elders. So that's a habit that I always have. I always tap my hand and I bow to my elders. Mm -hmm. um no matter where they are and they, and they always point that out they be like you're always bowing you're always bowing and i'm like you always bow before you hug me i was like yeah that's i'm so mm -hmm. that's an african tradition i'm supposed to bow to you because you guys have been through a lot and that, you know i have to honor you for that um especially you know if you lived in the united states you've been through way more than we had so i have to honor and respect you so i bow to you and you're right they, they noticed that um how i carry myself you're right and that is true indeed across the board. I, you know, as somebody said it earlier, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Mm -hmm. So if you are acting as if uh, you are ready to be taught by an elder, you're right. It's, it's very, <laughs> they'll just show up. You know, it'll be a happenstance, but you know, nothing happens by chance. Um, are there any specific cultural or spiritual practices within the Black community that can be utilized to promote mental well-being and resilience among black men? Um, one thing I do with my students, um, unfortunately, a lot of my students experience gun violence. They lose a lot of family members and, and close comrades to um, gun violence. So um, I, taught, I teach a lot of them how to pour libations. Um, and, um, and a lot of times, like, I'll have them come to me and they'll say, hey, you know, Mr. Sergeant, can I talk to you for that? I'm like, yeah, what's up? You know, so and so passed. Can we go pour libations? And I'm like, oh wow! And and we'll go outside and get to this tree and we'll pour libations. And they they'll, sometimes they'll just see me doing it when I remember somebody an ancestor that I just forgot and I remember them and I'll go pour libations. So right. that's a practice that um, I want to teach them those traditions, right? To commemorate those that've been here before. And then I also get on them about, especially the knuckleheads. I get on them about, well, you know, you know, my cousin got murdered and da 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 da. da and I want to do this. And I'm like, well, I think you would honor his transition if you stay here, put in work and uplift your community. Like that, that's how you honor their memory. So mm -hmm. that ritual is the first step in honoring their, honoring their memory. And then we can figure out what we need to do to make sure that we continue to honor their memory in a positive fashion that positively impacts our community. So that's one ritual that we, that I do all the time. And I think another uh, that comes from uh the various orishas is building an altar you know ha having an altar and having your own council of ancestors so I, I give you an example so for myself i may have a council of ancestors uh whether it's maggie l walker madam cj walker o.w Gurley, the founder of black wall street uh the honorable marcus garvey the honorable elijah muhammad uh, Herman J. Russell, who is a prominent uh, entrepreneur in the Atlanta area, uh, Reginald F. Lewis. So if there are issues that I'm addressing in terms of Black economic empowerment, Black entrepreneurship, you know, I would say, what can I do and call on that ancestral entrepreneurial spirit? And, and also S.B. Fuller, you know, who I consider the godfather. In fact, he basically was the godfather uh sales wise to mary Kay ash hmm. in fact she would drive hundreds of miles just to listen to fuller and gain his sales training okay so 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 we can set up that altar 
and pull on those ancestral spirits and pull on their legacies to say, how can this legacy help me in today's world? Jeez, that's tough. I told y'all I went to um, D.C. recently to check out that African-American History Museum again uh, because they have the Afrofuturism installment. And what the brother Zumbi is talking about, I did just that. I went to call on my ancestors to be like, hey, this health and wellness thing, it really sits deep on my heart. Show me the way. And in that museum, I saw healthy body, healthy mind. We're a legacy of leadership, a legacy of entrepreneurship. So everything that I'm doing even no matter how intrepidatious it feels, is along the right path for those that have come before me. Um, What advice would you gentlemen give to other black men or even young men uh, who may be hesitant or reluctant to seek help for their mental health? And how can we encourage them to take uh, their first steps? I think, um, again, I said it earlier, finding that community because in, in your in your city, there's a community that does this. There's a community of men, of black men that that are seeking to heal themselves in their community. Um, and and like uh, Minister Zumbi talked about earlier, they're 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 the different tribes. You know, you, there's different tribes. It, it may not be over here. It may this this tribe may not be for you, but this tribe might be for you. And you really have to look. Um, but you, they're out there. I'm telling you. And a lot of times. They're like right around the corner. Like it's not even a matter of you got to really look far, far out. It's right around the corner. Um, it, it might be in your local church. It might be in, in, in you know, in, in school. Um, but they're out there. There's mentorship programs. Um, there's programs that will actually pair you up with a mentor. You know, and I'm talking about black men, right? Um, um, I see it all the time. So like, uh, but one thing I've learned is that. Um, I've had I've had young men come to me and ask me to be their mentor and you just have to ask and you'd be surprised who would who would be honored to be your mentor who would be honored who would who would love to mentor you who would love to help you so you just have to ask and you'd be surprised who would be there for you yeah and really when you're trying to find a community find a community where you feel emotionally safe yes okay and i had to explain to women uh i was on a panel discussion and she was complaining about her husband won't open up uh won't talk and everything i said does he feel emotionally safe around you okay because for a lot of brothers they feel that there's nowhere on this planet where they feel emotionally safe so they have to play everything close to the vest okay so finding a place where you feel emotionally safe to as as they say in church lay your burden down okay i agree that's that's a very good question very very good question so real quick brothers just for the ladies out there listening how does a woman create that space because a lot of women are not taught Right. We we've we've been too conditioned to treat you as if you don't have emotions and thoughts and feelings. How can a woman uh, create space for that man to feel emotionally safe? I, I don't know. And I, that's because I'm not I'm not a woman, so I wouldn't know. So, I'm sorry. I mean, I don't mean to be that. I don't you know. No, that's a fair answer. That's a fair answer. Let me let me rephrase the question then. What is something that your counterpart or someone you've been with has done for you that made you feel emotionally safe? I think I'll approach it this way. Okay. If you look at previous generations of African women, they they had an understanding that their men on some level was engaged in some form of combat. Okay, whether in the workplace or wherever. And somewhere she was taught either intuitively or through a socialization process to make the home a sanctuary. You know, and once that man walked into that house, whatever was going on outside stays outside because he knows now he's in a he's in a safe place okay 
He's in an emotionally safe place. He's in a familiar safe place. He can lay his burden down and he can just be. Okay. And I, I think that's what you were talking about, that uh, that science that has been lost because we've taken on alien cultural value systems that do not serve us holistically. I want I want to second that. Um, my partner, we, we've been we've been together 20 over 23 years now. Um, and that's one thing I will say, she's let me be what I wanted to be, you know, and I'm, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I'm saying that it's humanly possible. I'm not saying, mm. um, I'm not jumping out of airplanes or anything like that, but I'm, I'm a capoeirista. She lets me be a capoeirista. I'm a beat. So there, there have been times when we have played capoeira in my, in my house at one, two in the morning, you know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, you know, I, she let, I'm a B-boy. She lets me B-boy. You know what I mean? Like. She allowed me to go to the murder capital of the world to teach b-boying for the State Department, right? Um, but she lets me be who I am 100%. Like, she lets me be one I am. She's been um, very supportive. Um, she's been, um, and then, you know, like, um, when it comes to the community, she's been a upstanding member of the community. She has been everything I've, you know, what, what I look for in a partner, that's what I wanted. And that's what, that's what she is, right? So, so she's someone that's been very, and she's been a partner. She's that's one thing. That's why I always call her my partner. She has mm. been a partner to me all this time. And I think when you have when you have that understanding that it's a partnership, it'll mm. work. It'll work. But I, you know, but I, and then reciprocity, right? Um, she loves me and how she knows how to love me. I love her and how I know how to love her. But mm. I've never felt, um, even though it, and a lot of it is internal. A lot of it really isn't. A lot of it really isn't our partners. A lot of it is in, internal. There was times when I felt inadequate. She never told me I was inadequate. She never mm. told me that I was slipping. You know what I mean? It was something in the back of my mind that said, well, my family doesn't have this, so I, I might have to get another job, you know? Mm. Um, and she's like, she never told me I had to do that. She never she never threw it in my face. So um, so that she's always made me feel who like I, I feel like a man around. Her. And I'm not saying, uh, and I want to be careful when I say that because I feel like you should always feel that way in any room you step in or try to. And I don't think, mm. and, I, and I know that we shouldn't consistently depend on outside validation, but outside validation is important. Mm. But she's never made me feel inadequate, even when I was wrong, right? Mm. Um, and she's never made me feel less than. So that you know, just a second off of what you second off of what you said, brother minister. But that's that's what I can I can say I can say to that I can speak to that. She's never mm. made me feel some type of way, right? Okay. Um, she 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 lets me know, yo, you're a great dad, you're a great human being, you're a great person, you're asset to this community and she supports that in me and this and vice versa i'll do the same to her so i hope that kind of answers your question um fit goddess like i can speak to that yeah I, 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 oh, yeah i think it's yeah i think it's very important uh I, I think the term is and to sum it up what dan was saying do we speak life into our men mm -hmm. okay instead of speaking death because death is always around the corner whenever we leave our our homes okay but when we come home is our partner speaking life into us to recharge us to encourage us to empower us okay so i think i think and i and i think that's always been the woman's role is speaking life into her man because she understands as she speaks life into him reciprocity he will bring life to her mm -hmm. and the children brother you said a mouthful right there <laughs> uh, so this has been a phenomenal show we gotta we gotta wrap it up because you know it's getting late but before we go both of y'all are phenomenal gentlemen. Tell us where we can find you. Uh, Danny, I'm going to need that um, that circle thing. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm trying to create a, a mentorship program. You know, the gods. And I just need to be able to train or assist in training a man to do the thing and then help him do more of this. Because this is very um, important for me, one, because I'm a mother of sons and I need to know that this thing is happening in the world so that they have a, a safe place to, to go to and continue to grow into their manhood. But um, whoever would like to start, tell us where we can find you, what you do, and then we'll close it out. 
Um, my podcast, where my killer tape at, um, I'm going to be posting a new episode next week. Um, I have a guest on the show, so it's on all platforms. And just look up Dan Trezomi, just Google that, and you can find me. Um, you, you, you hit me up. I'm accessible. You can email me. Um, definitely accessible. You could always ask questions. If you need help with something, let me know. And I can definitely find you a resource. Okay. Uh, you can actually find my book, uh, Gospel of Afronomics Theology, on Amazon. Um, you can also find my Facebook group, uh, Gospel of Afronomics Theology, where I'm constantly putting content on uh, that speaks to the economic challenges of the African world community and solutions that can help the African world community become more financially free and economically independent. Absolutely wonderful. I didn't want to show my face because again, this was about the gods. This was about you guys and how we can be of more help and service to the gentlemen that are, you know what I'm saying, taking care of a lot of things. So to all those out there on YouTube, thank you for joining us on this uh, insightful exploration of Black masculinity and mental health. Uh, we hope that this episode has sparked important conversations and raised awareness. Remember, it's essential to challenge the stigma and outdated roles to support mental well-being of Black men. Remember, please like, comment, and share this video to spread awareness and encourage an open dialogue. Uh, thank you to the two of you for being a part of the Fit to Heal community. Remember, everybody stay strong, stay healthy, and together let's create positive change. And again, don't forget to subscribe to the channel for more empowering content. Until next time, uh, take care and keep the conversation going. Peace. 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 And...